Well, please do find a Bible. If you didn't pick one up on your way in, there should be a few left at the back of the room. And do turn with me back to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5 this week, verses 13 to 25. That's on page 975 in the Black Visitors' Bibles. Galatians chapter 5 from verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's bow our heads. Our shepherd, good and true is he, who will at last his Israel free. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would show us our good shepherd. Feed us and help us through what you say today to follow him this week. Amen. Sometimes knowing who a person is speaking to makes all the difference in the world as to how you understand them. Just think of how a simple everyday sentence, at least for the last week or so, can change depending on who is being spoken to. Today is going to be a beautiful day. Spoken by a weather forecaster into a television camera, those words just convey a bit of mundane information, don't they? Less than average rainfall, a little bit of sunshine. But what if it's a father speaking those words to his little girl on the morning of her wedding? They take on a totally different character, don't they? Today is going to be a beautiful day. Don't you worry, darling. Or think about those same words spoken in a hospice. The patient is exhausted, the atmosphere is gray, and the nurse knows there won't be too many more of these days left. But with a smile on her face, she throws open the curtains and props him up in the bed. Today is going to be a beautiful day, she says. 
And those same mundane words mean something very different again, don't they? Let's enjoy it. Let's enjoy every moment we can. Something Jen always enjoyed about no longer being pregnant was that overnight it became socially unacceptable to pat her on the stomach and say, aren't you looking huge? Once that was fine, now it's not. Say it to a pregnant lady. Apparently they have to grin and bear it. Say it to her now. I've got to be honest, I pity you or whatever poor fool tries. You see the point? Who a person is speaking to and where they are makes all the difference in the world as to how we understand them. And I think we have a tendency to read Galatians 5 as if Paul were yet another speaker on thought for the day, conveying bland, general, pious advice to Christians out in the ether. Some stuff about love, a summary of some fruit of the Spirit, and another list of what bad people tend to be like. And we read it and we think, I suppose that's moderately interesting and a little bit bit convicting. I should probably respond by looking into my own heart and deciding which kind of person I am, what fruits. What if, in fact, though, these words were just as poignant as the ones spoken by the father of the bride or the nurse in the hospice? What happens if we remember the particular people Paul is speaking these words to? I think something very interesting happens then because this becomes the moment that Paul looks his Galatian church in the eye and tells the emperor that he's got no clothes on. He isn't just spelling out generalities here. He's saying, take a long, hard stare in the mirror. There is something ugly growing in Galatia but there's also something beautiful, strange fruit. Look at these elite teachers of yours who've been troubling you with their approach to godliness. Look carefully at their lives and tell me what you see. Are they making progress, this progress they claim you all need? Are they really being shaped and restored by God's law? No, they talk the talk but it's time someone called them out. These religious gurus of yours are strutting about absolutely starkers. And what's more, they've got knobbly knees and bulging midriffs and spindly little chicken legs. Look at them. But look at those of you who are so rocked and worried by their teaching, the ordinary Christians in church. And can't you see something beautiful growing? Well, that beautiful thing you're seeing. That's Jesus. So it's time to stop fawning over them and think again about what it is that Jesus calls his people to be. Do you see the point? It's not so much look into your own hearts and tell me what fruit you see. The message really is take a look at yourselves, you Galatian church, and ask Which approach to the Christian life do you really want to be following? Which one delivers what it promises, mine or these super-religious troublemakers? This has been a letter all about how real Christians, genuine Christians, walk. Back in chapter 2, remember, at that disastrous church lunch, Peter was accused of walking out of step with what he actually believed. And now Paul comes right back to that idea. Look at how it bookends the big paragraph in our passage. Verse 16, walk by the Spirit. And verse 25, keep in step with him. 
the troublemakers in Galatia preyed on people's doubts and discouragement with the Christian life. They were the spiritual elites who would show you how to grow, how to master the real Christian disciplines. But what Paul is exposing here is that these godly Christians haven't even got the basics. They were neither truly free in Christ nor truly friends with Christ. They didn't really love God or the law that they claimed to cherish so much. And you can tell all of that because their walk was out of step with his gospel. So far from being a passage that just beats us up and make us feel all depressed about our sin, I think for Paul's ordinary Galatian Christians, what he has to say here was meant to be seriously encouraging. He's writing as a worried pastor to reassure them that the marks of a true Christian are not the marks they've been so concerned about. You don't need to look like the deeper Christians. That's his message. In fact, why on earth would you want to look anything like them? No, the sign of a true Christian isn't some great spiritual progress that they parade in front of you. A true Christian is someone who is struggling away with their sinful nature. They may not look like they're winning, but at least they're fighting. And it's the fight which counts. They fight because they love their father and they love his law. And as a result, they love his people. That's what matters. So we've got two points this morning about what real Christianity looks like, the real mark of freedom in Christ and the real mark of friendship with Christ. Two beautiful and comforting realities, but each time strutting around in the background is that naked Galatian emperor, the Christianity of the special Christians. So firstly then, in verses 13 to 15, the message is something rather surprising. Those who are beautifully free in Christ can become slaves to one another. How do you spot the religious emperor with no clothes? Well, he hasn't yet learned what true freedom looks like. And so the kind of language Paul uses in verse 13 would just sound like contradictory nonsense to him. You are called to freedom, brothers, only don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's your own selfish nature. But through love become slaves to one another. Maybe it's the paradox at the heart of the Christian life. God frees us to serve through love. I wonder if that sounds like real freedom to you. It probably depends on who your model for true humanity is. You see, the religious man is someone whose life is ultimately about serving himself working his way up the moral ladder, desperate to get validation out of others. That's what we've seen in Galatia. And yet the Christian knows that Christ rescued us from slavery so that we could become slaves to his ways, be free of all our concerns as to how we look, how we're performing. And that, Paul says, that is real liberation, to learn to live and love like our liberator, like a true human being made in the image of his or her creator. 
Think of a husband, perhaps, who's still so enslaved to his own selfish needs that he sees love for his wife as a burden. Yes, of course, it's something you've got to do. Otherwise, you risk your dinner being served late and the dishes lying unwashed and a cold shoulder at bedtime. But to love a man like that, for a man like that, it just means getting, doesn't it? It means getting what he wants back from her. That's the reason for it. To him, serving his wife is a form of slavery. And that's the love, I think, of a legalistic man. But a husband who is truly free from serving himself, he is free to love in a very different way. It's a joy for him to love his wife. He can ask himself, how can I best serve her, meet her needs, help her to grow? That's the kind of service that only a free man could enjoy giving. And so here comes the surprise, the moment that the emperor is exposed, because the way we love, according to Paul, reveals what we truly think about God and his law. Remember, the whole approach of these legalistic troublemakers was that to make progress in God's eyes, you depend on observing Jewish law. But what does Paul say in verse 14? He says that, frankly, this super-religious group just don't take God's law seriously enough because they haven't realized that the law isn't about us. It isn't a guide to becoming a better me. No, the law is all about each other. That's what God's heart is like, isn't it? The whole law, verse 14, is summed up in one word, and that word is love. Now, he's told us already that love is the only thing that counts. Faith without love at its heart is no faith at all. That's all God ever wanted from his people. And that is the one thing these legalists lack. But here's where Paul does something slightly odd, I think. If you were to sum up the whole of God's law, to sum up what God wants from his children, there would be a pretty obvious place in the Bible to turn, wouldn't there? Because when Jesus was asked that question, he went straight to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Here is the most important of all the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul and with all your might. But that isn't where Paul turns, is it? He goes to the book of Leviticus, to the command that Jesus said comes second. The whole law, verse 14, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, why do you think Paul would do that? I suspect he knows, just like Jesus, that any real love for God is going to show itself in how we treat each other. So right the way through this letter, Paul's been interested in something more than the theology of how we're forgiven, our justification. He's been interested in seeing our justification in action. He wants to see that this church has understood grace by the way they treat each other, accept each other. Just look with me at verse 6 of this chapter, right after Paul's brave heart moment. And here is his manifesto for the Christian life, the claim that drives the rest of the letter. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Justified Christians, true, full-fat Christians, 
are the ones who come and sit down next to the woman who's on her own in church, and they ask her how her week's been. Justified Christians are the ones who invite the awkward Christians home for lunch, who pray for the ones struggling in sin. In other words, they believe in grace, and so they love with grace. How then do you wake up a proud, legalistic church who are utterly convinced that it's them and only them who really love the Lord? Well, you get them to take a long, hard look at themselves in the mirror. And what the Galatians should have seen, verse 15, was backbiting and gossip and tearing each other apart. So much for love. And if there's no love, then no matter what great feats they're performing, is there really any living faith? Well, it becomes plainer and plainer over the rest of this letter that the people he's aiming at here are precisely the same people who are so into circumcision and external holiness the ones who make such a fuss about observing the law. Because by focusing on rules and boundaries, we can start to convince ourselves that we're doing just fine, that everyone else is the problem. And that is how we start to make opportunities for the flesh. So verse 15 is the killer verdict on the religious man's solution to our sinful human nature. Ironically, it's the ones harping back to Moses whose lives are furthest from God's law because legalism cannot lead to love, which the law was all about. As an answer to the sinful desires of our flesh, it is completely and utterly useless. That whole human approach to godliness and progress just doesn't work. So you see, it's not Paul who doesn't care about God's law for all the mud that they might throw at him. In fact, he is the one who is seriously interested in it, just not as a cold, self-serving way to earn respect from God and recognition in his church. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism asks a very helpful question, one that every forgiven human needs to ask. What is the duty that God requires of man? And the answer it gives is this, obedience to his revealed will. That's a good, clear answer, and it's fleshed out well over the next few questions. But I suspect if you ask Paul or Jesus or Moses, they might manage that same answer in one little word. Our duty as God's wonderfully forgiven children is love. Now, where does that leave us? We know now why God has rescued us. The whole purpose of our freedom is to be made into lovers, a holy people who fulfill God's wonderful law. But how? How do we do that? Aren't some people just naturally more loving than others? Are we expected to just whip up the right feelings for each other inside ourselves? Well, no. Love, as Paul is using it, is something much more than a feeling. In fact, there's a very definite shape to it. When you look at the picture which Paul paints of that love over the next few paragraphs, it becomes very obvious what he's talking about. It's a kind of love that is self-giving and other-person-centered and sacrificial. In other words, it is Jesus' kind of love, which is hardly a surprise, is it? If this kind of love 
was at the heart of God's law, then it's no shock that it's the love that reflects the one who gave the law. It's the law which shapes and defines what true love is, which is why when we saw the lawgiver, the law keeper, walk this earth, he was the most loving man there had ever been. The kind of love which counts is the kind which urges us to say no to ourselves, not to be served, but to serve. We don't love by trying to conjure up the right feelings. We love when Jesus' Spirit takes hold of our hearts and calls us to sacrifice our selfish behaviors, which is really what the second section is all about. We've seen that real freedom in Christ makes us slaves to each other, And now from verses 16 to 25, we're going to learn something about real friendship with Christ. Those who know beautiful friendship with Christ will know war within themselves. If you feel torn inside, if you feel like you are hopelessly addicted to doing things you wish you wouldn't do, frankly, if you feel like a terrible, terrible Christian... Well, it's probably not because you're doing it wrong. That war inside you is what happens the minute you find peace with the God who made you. Now, Jesus' name may only come once in this paragraph, but this whole section, remember, is about fighting to love his way, to walk with him. Those are the bookends that surround the whole thing. Keep walking in step with Christ's spirit because walking with Jesus, verse 16, is the only real solution to those selfish desires of your own flesh. What loveless religion can never do, his spirit does in spades. But if that sounds like an easy answer, well, let me warn you, these verses make pretty hard reading because what they're describing is an all-out war between the God of the universe and the things you and I cherish the most inside. It's a great battle which begins the moment Christ's spirit takes possession of a human being. Ten times in this closing section of the letter, Paul uses the word flesh, and ten times he uses the word spirits. Flesh is everything in us that says me, not Christ, and the spirit is Christ in me. The flesh craves the things which feed and gratify me, but the spirit in us craves all those Christ-like qualities which selflessly serve others, fulfilling his law of love. And so the moment we become his, battle commences between two implacably opposed forces, verse 17, a battle that will not let up until one of those forces is dead. But the key piece of intelligence comes in verse 18. It's a simple reminder, really, of something Paul has inserted into the argument to encourage us that this war is not an even fight. Since you're led by the Spirit, you are no longer under the law. Now, all Christians are led by the Spirit, aren't we? That's just how Paul talks about believers in this letter, and since that's the case, he's saying, you aren't driven by the legalist's approach to the law anymore. That's what it means to be under the law. 
The law is no longer the thing you enslave yourself to as your only hopeless, graceless solution to sin. The law here stands for that flesh-driven, human, twisted understanding of the Christian life. But if you trust Christ, there is a far greater power at work in you than that. Even if, from your perspective, it just feels like one long, hard slog. Sometimes when Jesus' spirit takes possession of us, it can feel like petrol being poured onto the flames of our struggles, can't it? It doesn't make them go away. In fact, the reality is we just feel the battle more acutely the better we know him. But that battle is what gives us hope. So let me draw your attention to what I think might be the most uncomfortable word in the New Testament. It comes about halfway through verse 19 in our translation. It's the word evidence. Doesn't that one make your toes curl? It is perfectly evident, says Paul, when our lives are being driven by our own selfish natures. Ouch, is it? I thought I hid that quite well. But apparently all those behaviors we cover up with our religion, with our human fixes, those things we like to think only we can see, the truth is they are perfectly plain for everyone to see. Isn't that an uncomfortable thought? But there's a reason Paul makes his readers squirm a little there. Once again, he's pointing out that naked emperor. He doesn't just want them to look into their own hearts. He wants them to look around the church at the people they're following and ask how well is their answer to the flesh working out? Look around and it should be perfectly evident which group is relying on their own goodness and religious effort to impress God. Are they battling? If you think of the portrait this letter paints of the false teachers, then what we have in verses 19 to 21 are the colors that Paul has been using. These works of the flesh are the palette he's been painting the legalists with all along. And as he finishes the portrait in chapter 6, we'll see that clear as day. The thing which these works of the flesh have in common, verse 19, is that all of them are me-centered. They're all things which our flesh lets us get away with when it's our flesh that we trust in. Selfish sexual appetites, verse 19. Self-serving religious superstition, idolatry and sorcery, trying to manipulate God into serving me. Selfish relational attitudes, envy, anger, divisiveness. Selfish appetites for alcohol, stimulants, foods. All the things which please and gratify me, my flesh, at the expense of others. Now, brothers and sisters, if we don't read that list and recognize an awful lot that still lurks in our own hearts, then we surely don't know ourselves very well, because my flesh is more than capable of all of it. Every day it cries out, me and not Christ. And if you think you're any different, then let me recommend what I have discovered to be a wonderful diagnostic tool. Just hop onto Ryanair.com and book yourself into their spiritual discernment package. They don't market it that way. They market it as a flight to Luton. But the last time I tried, I sat through that flight reading a Christian book. 
and thinking Christian thoughts. It was wonderful. No children with me. It was happy days. And then the plane landed, and the doors took forever to open. And the people started pushing and shoving and faffing about in the aisle, and something incredibly ugly began to boil up inside me. And of course, I had all sorts of excuses, didn't I? Something very important to be at, people who needed me to be there. But nobody else on the plane could see my excuses. What they could see, plain as day, was a very grumpy, angry, impatient man jostling with all the rest. And to my shame, I think it must have been perfectly evident. A total stranger on that flight could have looked at me in that moment and known that my self-centered flesh had the upper hand. And something ugly like that lurks in all of us, if we're honest. You don't have to scratch us very deep to see our old natures. But what if it's that ugly human nature, our flesh, that we are counting on to make us something? What if as a church we start to rely on a gospel not from God, but from self-absorbed human beings? That has been Paul's charge against the Galatians, hasn't it? It's a human gospel, a gospel of religion and church attendance and law-keeping. They're fighting flesh with flesh. And so the truth is they're not really fighting at all. Well, the outcome is not going to be pretty, is it? And that, I think, is what Paul wants to show us. This is where legalistic human religion gets you. Look around the church, and it will be plain as day who's pushing it. Whereas those who are walking in step with the Spirit of Jesus Christ are the ones fighting, not for themselves, but for each other. They're all relational, aren't they? These fruits of the Spirit, qualities in us which delight and cherish other people. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Isn't gentleness wonderful? Self-control. We long for those, don't we, us Christians? Every time I lose my temper with the kids or thoughtlessly upset someone else, something in me deep down aches to have dealt with it more like this, and I reckon we're all the same. That is Christ in us. That is a wonderful, reassuring feeling, that ache, that longing to live his law of love out. Christians who are the real deal rarely feel like it when we look inside, but that's precisely because we know Jesus. We can see the gap. And strangely, friends, that longing to be more like him is the most reassuring experience a Christian can ever know in this world. If you feel like a failing, crummy excuse for a believer, then take heart, because it's our grief, our frustration, which tell us that Jesus' spirit is at work. There's nothing in Paul's understanding of the Christian life that suggests a person who's arrived, to think like that is more like the religious lot, isn't it? In fact, the way Paul describes the ordinary Christian life, verse 24, is as a kind of death. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That doesn't mean we've beaten them. It just means we've nailed them decisively to Jesus' cross. We did it at our conversion when we trusted him to pay the penalty. 
and we do it again day after day as we battle to say no to ourselves and to serve others in love because the cross is always where Jesus' spirit is going to pull us. Real friendship with Christ means war with ourselves, a war that can only end in death. Not a quick death and not an easy one, but verse 24, those who truly belong to Jesus have counted the cost already. We've recognized that everything about us has to die alongside him. And something very strange has happened. We've realized that actually that is not some grim struggle we have to grit our teeth and bear. It's a beautiful thing that we want to embrace. They are strange fruits, these fruits of the Spirit, because they are deeply, deeply beautiful and attractive. We'd love to be like this, wouldn't we? We love the one who is like this. But those beautiful fruits come at the cost of all the things that we love about ourselves. They come at the cost of a thousand deaths. Jesus says, if you come to me, I will make you perfect. It won't be easy. It will feel like often you're going backwards. But you need to know that it will happen. I will have you. And that fight, that life of loving and dying again and again, that is true freedom, true friendship with the one who's so good. One of my favorite writers to give away to people looking for forgiveness was an evangelist from Australia called John Chapman. He was a lovely man, a godly, mature Christian who wrote about the gospel with beautiful simplicity and when he died at the age of 82, he had one of the best obituaries I've ever seen. The front cover of the briefing magazine simply read this, Chapo's legacy, the first 82 years are the hardest. Wouldn't those be great words to have on your headstone? If I've ever seen an obituary worth dying for, surely that's it. The testimony of a good and faithful servant, not someone who thought they had it all sorted, but a man who persevered humbly through weakness and temptation in the strength of Jesus' spirit, a man who struggles to the end. There's nothing remotely Christian about perfectionism, is there? In fact, it's the people with no sign of struggle that need to be worried. But to every weary and war-torn Christian who looks around the church and wonders if they've got something wrong, our apostle says, keep going, keep walking, keep submitting to Jesus' spirit who says, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow the king of love. Let's pray. Father God, these words we've read force us to say thank you and forgive us and please help. Thank you for all that you've freed us from in the cross of your Son, from the inability of our flesh to achieve anything good, the hatred and the anger that it deserved. Forgive us, Father, for all that you've shown us still lurking in our hearts, for our lack of love for each other, which speaks so painfully about our lack of concern for you and your ways. And please help us, Lord God, to walk in step 
with the spirit of your son, not to rely on rules and resolutions that only let us get away with more, but instead help us to submit day by day to the king of love. For we ask it all through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen.